Good morning. I feel like uh, I need to give a few disclaimers. Uh, it's been a little while, and um, there's probably some new faces since I've been up here. Uh, the disclaimer is this. Um, my sermons tend to be both controversial and long-winded. So, so that being said, uh, let me give a few explanations for that. Um, I was a youth pastor for 10 years, and I feel like young people thrive on controversy. That's what they want to hear, whether they accept it or not. They like to engage in, in the hard things and the hard discussions. And so um, I kind of got into that rhythm and, uh, and kind of never came out of it. And it's not intentional. It's just kind of where it goes. And I am using the lectionary this morning, so uh, maybe you can blame that and not me. Um, now, the long-winded thing has to do with youth ministry, too, because um, I would speak to them regularly, but that was very, uh, you know, just very off-the-cuff kind of stuff. And, and uh, so for over 12 years now, I've pretty much had the same kind of pattern of speaking to whatever church I attend, because I was this kind of the second guy, and when the pastor was gone, I would speak, and so when I came here the same routine kind of was in place every two to three months. Now it's been a little while. It's been about six months now since I've spoken here, so probably it's been, it might be a little extra. But uh, so I would, you know, when I would, I was so used to just speaking off the cuff that when I would prepare a sermon, I would prepare it and then I would get up and it would, I would realize that I had prepared two or three sermons. So uh, if it gets really bad, I'll just stop in the middle. Um, but otherwise, we'll, we'll try to breeze through some stuff. Um, and it, it's worked out really well for me. Um, I like what the lectionary has to say. And we're basically going to start with a quick survey of the theme from the lectionary uh, through the Old Testament before we uh, get into the passages that are, that are listed. Um, let's start with the uh, creation account in Genesis just to remind you of some things that, that you know, but it will help us in our journey today. Um, in, in the creation account, um, God makes it very clear that what he has made is good. And he says that at the end of every day. And at, at the very end, he says it's very good. Now, on Thursday nights, one of, uh, the first book we studied was by Ched Myers, a little green book. And there's usually a copy. I've commandeered the copy, but there's usually a copy in the library. Um, the biblical vision for Sabbath economics. And what he talks about, what Chet talks about in there, is that the word for good, the Hebrew word, really means fat or abundant. Now, good, good is, is on the right track, but we need to add meaning to that. We need to add abundance, that it is, um, not only is there an inherent goodness in it, but it is what we need. And in fact, it's, in a sense, more than we need. It's abundant. It's fat. And so um, that's what happens in, in the creation narrative. But also what we see is that uh, what we need to be reminded of is that in chapter 3, when Adam and Eve uh, sin, and we call that the fall of man, the result is that creation is cursed. Now, it's very easy growing up in an evangelical church, as I did, to translate that, that creation fell as well, that creation is falling, creation is not falling, creation is cursed. Man fell, as a result, creation was cursed. 
Creation did nothing to deserve the curse. Um, it's, it's collateral damage. And so that reality will help us later as we get towards the Gospels. So keep that in mind, the goodness of creation, the abundance of creation, but also the curse that resulted from the fall. Um, so as we trace this theme through Scripture, another theme kind of comes into play with it, and that is um, that Yahweh is the God of I will, and this idea that, that Yahweh is not afraid or doesn't shy from basically, basically performing tricks. I mean, he says... He says, I will be there for you, and you can trace this theme uh, everywhere that you, you want to look in the Old Testament. It seems that Yahweh doesn't mind essentially having his strings pulled or performing for his people. Um, you look at bets with the devil that he made in Job, um, bargaining with Abram, and essentially Abram won. Um, he based, you know, Moses' three-ring circus with you know, balls of fire and clouds that that guide the people and things like that. And then uh, magic shows in the desert with, uh, with Baal and competitions between gods. And so Yahweh's not afraid to, to basically put himself out there because he wants his people to know that not only has he given them an abundant creation, but that he will provide. Um, and largely he does that through his creation. And so that's the theme that we see. And, and I have to think there as we look at you know, the way Yahweh uh, treats his people in the Old Testament. What if, uh, what if that was us? If I was Yahweh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to do tricks. I wouldn't want to prove myself. I would just kind of be like, you know, I don't, I, don't have to, I don't have to do that for you guys. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm God. I don't, uh, you, just have to, you just have to believe me. You just have to trust uh, that I can do these things. But that's not how he was. He was always... Uh, willing and able to, to show himself when, when people asked, basically asked for a sign. And then you get to the prophets, and they, they attest to that. They say, they say things like, on behalf of God, I will, I will redeem my people. I will do this. I will do that. And so that's where we come to uh, Isaiah chapter 49. So let's look at, uh, look at these up on, on your leisure, whichever one you want. Uh, we may not read um, all of them. But Isaiah 49, 8 through 16 is the first one. Psalm 131 is the second. And then 1 Corinthians 4. And just kind of hold your finger on that chapter. Isaiah 49, 8 through 16. Psalm 131. And 1 Corinthians 4. So who would be willing to read from Isaiah? Starting at verse 8. Andrew, are you there? Sure. Verse 8 through 16. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor I have answered you. On a day of salvation I have helped you. I have kept you and given you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, Come out, to those who are in the darkness, show yourselves. They shall feed along the way, and all the bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall, be, shall not be hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them down, for he who has pity on them will lead them. 
and by springs of water will guide them. And I will turn all my mountains into a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Lo, these shall come from far away, and lo, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Syene. Sing for the joy, O heavens, and O exalt, O earth. Bring forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people, and will have compassion on his suffering ones. Through 16? Yeah. That the Lord has forsaken me, my Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child, or show no compassion for the child of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. See, I have inscribed you on the palm of my hand. Your walls are continually before me. Okay, so um, without dwelling on it too much and probably avoiding um, some kind of misuse here, Let's just highlight the fact that uh, this theme is picked up right there in the middle, uh, verse 9 verse through verse 11. Uh, the idea that God will provide and, and guide through his creation. And God says, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step up to the plate and I'm going to guide these people, uh, but I'm going to use uh, you know, the, the pastures and uh, they won't hunger or thirst and the sun won't beat upon them and uh, I will guide them uh, beside the springs of water, things that are already there. I will show them where they are. Uh, the mountains, I will, I will use these things to guide my people. Okay? Psalm 131. Does anyone have that open? David, can you read that? It's real short. My heart is not proud, O Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have still divided my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. So there's a simplicity in what David is saying um, without becoming too critical of David's life, perhaps. Um, we certainly could probably go into judgment on whether he um, attained some of these things. Um, but I think some of the words that are being used here uh, my heart, my eyes, uh, my soul. Um, it's not just merely a spiritual matter. It's, it's kind of a holistic picture that we're getting from David. And there's a simplicity. Um, I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me, but instead I hope in the Lord. So there's just some kind of extraction from things uh, that would that would take away from hoping in the Lord, and the result is now that I have simplified my life, now I can put my hope in the Lord. Oh, Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. Okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Hopefully, it doesn't feel like we're doing a disservice here. We're just trying to move along. 1 Corinthians 4, and basically what I want to highlight, we don't have to read this whole chapter, but I do want to highlight that uh, towards the middle, Paul says uh, in verse 8, already you have all you want, already you have become rich, you have become kings, and that without us. How I wish that you really had become kings so that we might be kings with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession like men condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to men. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, 
but you are strong. You are dishonored, we are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. So we see that again. We are in rags, we are brutally treated, we are homeless. We work hard with our own hands, we are cursed. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answered kindly. Up to this moment, we have become the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. And then move on down. Um, Therefore, I urge you to imitate me in verse 16. For this reason, I am sending to you Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way, of life in Christ Jesus. You know, the way of... uh, being homeless and going hungry and thirsty. So this idea that Timothy is going to come and, and show uh, the, the church in Corinth how Paul lives his life and how Paul follows Jesus and that perhaps they can imitate him. Um, so I, I think that's interesting. Now, now we're going to get to, uh, to Jesus. And he always seems to up the ante. Uh, most often... Uh, in a tremendous way and sometimes in an unfathomable way. And I think that's what we're going to find this morning. So this is your warning about what we're reading next. Um, if you want to stay with with Paul or if you want to stay with Isaiah, um, I wouldn't be too offended if you leave right now. But, but Jesus is going to kind of hit us in the face here in chapter 6 of Matthew. So turn there. We're going to look at that for a little bit, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, James, I want you to read verse 24 through 34. No one can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You shall not serve God in wealth. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap, nor gather in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And can any of you, by worrying at a single hour of your span of life? And why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. How they grow, they neither twirl nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For as the Gentiles who strive for all these things, and indeed your heavenly Father knows that you need these things, but strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you as well. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow when worries with own. Today's trouble is enough for today. So, upon first reading, it's, uh, it becomes apparent, a couple things become apparent. Number one, Learn from creation. Jesus says, learn from creation. Uh, Why? Well, hearkening back to uh, what we said in the uh, creation narrative, because the flowers and the birds still know their place. 
we as fallen humanity have forgotten our place and uh, that's our existence is uh, relearning our place in the world uh, but the birds and the flowers they never forgot that they know what they're supposed to do though they're under a curse and know sometimes the sun does burn up a flower and sometimes birds do get sick and die uh, they they still have the right attitude towards everything in their lives and so Jesus says because of that you can look at them and and learn from your uh, for how to live your life they are not fallen like us now so we're going to kind of sit on this for a minute what what do we do with this passage um, and I grew up knowing this passage and you probably did too um, but this thing called sentimentality which basically is uh, turning the big one of the big tenets of it to me is turning the hard things that Jesus says into just pithy spiritual truths um, and so when I was growing up there was a song called consider the lilies I don't know if anyone's ever heard this but it was you know one of these southern gospel types and uh, it kind of it, it really sticks to this passage and talks about the birds and talks about the lilies and and has a lot of references to the very words that Jesus is using in this passage. But the chorus uh, never stood out to me when I was young, but uh, this week I kind of rehearsed it in my head, and it's, it's one of those songs, you know, that you haven't, you, I haven't, literally haven't heard the song played in 30 years, but I still know every word. It's that kind of thing. The chorus goes, uh, We have a heavenly Father above, with eyes full of mercy. You can just feel it, right? You can just feel the sentimentality coming out. With eyes full of mercy and a heart full of love. He really cares when your head is bowed low. Consider the lilies and then you will know. Um, and so the writer of this song, and hopefully it wasn't anyone's aunt or uncle or something, but the writer of this song uh, got to the place in this chorus where the conclusion for... The, uh, the, the personal application for what it means to consider the lilies is that God cares when our head is bowed. And I thought about that this week. It's like, what, how do you even get there? Uh, not to uh, diminish the importance of prayer, but it's just not in this passage. It's not what Jesus is talking about. Um, I don't know if they were thinking about, you know, a, a flower falling over and bowed or something, but... You know, this is the this is what you're left with if you if you read Jesus and you think surely he's not saying what I think he's saying. I have to come up with something else, and this is the kind of thing that you come up with is that uh, well, you know, God cares about us, and and uh, and we don't need to worry about our lives. We just need to uh, be good Christians and pray and read our Bible. Uh, Evangelical misuse of this passage is at worst a song like this about bowing your head and at best, or maybe at worst, uh, a justification for the comfortable lifestyle of the middle class in the West. And that's where we're going now. Um, and, you know, that, that may not make sense now, but Jesus' words beg the question, Okay. Jesus' words about worry, because this is, this is the heart of his message, don't worry. Uh, what do we have to worry about? 
I, I really don't have much. I could maybe come up with a very few things that might be legitimate, but they don't speak to the worry that Jesus is talking. I don't really have anything that relates to what Jesus is saying not to worry about. Um, we've heard of those who, we even say this, we even use this phrase, and before uh, this week it's never made, in my head it's never made this connection with this passage. We even make references to people who worry about their next meal. You know, you've heard that before. It's like, you know, we, we want to help this person because we want to help this single mom with their kids because there are times when they don't know where their next meal is coming from. Do you hear that language? That's the language that Jesus is using. Okay? That's the people that Jesus is talking about when he says, don't worry. Okay? Now, I was trying to think, um, and I was pretty, we were pretty poor growing up, but there was always a can of something. You know what I'm saying? And so I can't think of a time in my life where I literally, as, as a lifestyle, had a period of time where I had to worry about my next meal. Now, I've put myself in poverty simulations and things like that, but I'm talking about my life. Um, and so I encourage you to think about, have you ever had that time where that was the reality of your life? Um, so that's, that's where we're at. Uh, perhaps we've experienced it. It seems that this is the type of person that Jesus is talking to. And that would make sense. I mean, um, you know, it, it certainly wasn't a group from Joy Mennonite standing on that hill um, that day listening to Jesus talk. Um, it was more than likely subsistence farmers, people who grew their own food, uh, people perhaps who made their own clothes. Uh, yeah, probably a lot of them had wages, uh, they were probably in this hierarchical system of society within Roman society where they, you know, they kind of were, uh, you know, they were working for someone and someone worked for them and they were kind of in this class continuum. Um, but they weren't like us. Uh, they knew much more about worry. And they knew much more about a shortage of food and clothes. Uh, so, there's this disconnect between our lives and the lives of the people of Jesus' first audience. Um, and so people have whitewashed this passage uh, for centuries. And so I've written down here uh, what probably what we have heard when we read this as middle class Americans. So this is the middle class version of, uh, of this passage, these uh, ten verses. Therefore, do not worry about your life, about the mortgage or the gas prices. Is not life more important than your monthly budget? And I hope you're feeling the irony, like these are the things that we think Jesus is talking about. Fly through life worry-free like a bird flying in the air. And don't stress about shopping. When the time comes to buy new clothes, the money will be there. God provides sun and rain for the flowers exactly when they need them. He will do the same for you. The difference between Christians and non-Christians is that Christians don't worry about how they will sustain their middle class life. If you go to church and vote Republican, God will provide your middle class needs. That's, you know, that's how you seek the kingdom. 
and then all these things will be added to you. So I hope you could see the parallels in there of what happens. Because, you know, the result, you've heard, you, you ever flipped on the TV and someone says, yeah, I, uh, you know, I, I spent too much money the first part of the month and I didn't know how I was going to pay my rent, but, you know, God provided. <laughs> really? Like, you, I don't even, I, I don't even know if, how, how we can relate to that. Like, you have a lifestyle, okay, that doesn't depend upon God, and then you did something stupid, and then, like, magically, you know, you had some excess money that you didn't account for uh, in a timely manner, and God did that. Okay. Um, I, I, I know I'm being really critical right now, but in light of what Jesus is saying, there's really no connection. Certainly, we could leave, we could leave room for God, you know, bringing money to someone's door. But you can't use Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 6 to give credence to God doing that. Okay? The truth, okay? The truth. And I'm sorry this is so glum. I hope there's hope in the end. The truth is God does not provide our paychecks, our health, our safety, our food, our clothes, and on and on. We provide those things for ourselves. Uh, we ensure these provisions. And, and I'm just, th- these are some, some truths as a result of reading this passage. Um, one thing that I would say as a result is that God cannot provide for us as long as we are providing for ourselves. Okay? So that's, uh, when, you, when you read the passage, that's one of the things that you can, it's, it's an inference, it's not necessarily in there. But you can infer from the truth of what Jesus is saying is that God cannot provide for us as long as we are providing for ourselves. So, so what, what's left? Uh, here's, here's the possibility. Here's what we could do. Uh, we could rid our lives of those things without which we would have cause to worry. Okay? I hope that makes sense. It's, it's a kind of a complicated way to say it, but I, I couldn't figure out a simpler way to say it. We could rid our lives of those things without which we would have cause to worry. Then we can learn from the flowers and the birds how not to worry. Okay? Is everyone tracking with that statement? Because everything so far is leading up to that statement. That is, that's the heart of what I feel like Jesus is calling us to in these verses. Ridding ourselves of the things that if we didn't have, it would make us worry. Then we're in a place to read Jesus' words about worry and learn from the birds and the lilies. Wow, okay. Um, I, I like, I, I'm not there, okay? I'm not there. I still, um, I still provide for myself. I don't have anything to worry about. So I'm still a very long way from really learning essentially anything in my real life from the words of Jesus in this passage. And uh, so the question becomes, what do we do when we realize that the way of Jesus is just seemingly too hard for us? What do we do when we get to that place, like right here in Matthew 6, where we look at Jesus and we say, I can't deny what Jesus is saying, but I honestly can't do it right now. It's too much for me 
right now. I don't know if you've ever been in that place. It's a strange place, but it's an important place to be. And that's where I want all of us to be right now, is in this place where what Jesus is saying to us really is too much. On some level, okay? Now, I think some of us may be able to adapt uh, to this and to accept uh, these truths uh, more than others. Um, And so there's a continuum here, but on some level, I feel like every one of us in here cannot, okay, uh, not not in the long term, but cannot in in our own lives, in the the way we exist currently, this coming week, uh, really do everything that Jesus is saying. And I'm really sorry if that's like too negative, but that realization has just been paramount in my life in the last two years. Um, this this realization that that it's really a lot more difficult than I realized. So the options are this when we come to this realization. Number one, we can suppress the truth. We can just change Jesus' words. We can, we can make it sentimental, and we can write songs about the lilies and praying. Um, but that could lead to evangelicalism, so I warn you about that. Number two, we could reject the truth and just say, I hear what Jesus is saying, but I don't care. I'm just going to do my own thing. And of course, you know, a long string of, of doing that could just lead to secularism, and then you're, there's nothing left of your faith. The third option is, is, uh, is obviously where we would like to be, um, to accept the truth and change everything as a result. And that leads to the way of Jesus. The fourth option is where I am, and uh, probably where you'll find yourself, The fourth option is to struggle with the truth, to realize what Jesus is saying and to to struggle with it, to knowingly knowingly continue to live in a way uh, that contradicts Jesus' words, but but struggling uh, in mind and struggling with everything you have to do what you can. Uh, when you can. It's kind of the little steps thing that we talk about with creation care and those things. It's like little things count. Um, so the the fourth option could lead to uh, what I call defeatism, which basically is, you know, is when you throw up your hands and say, well, I know the way of Jesus, um, and I know I should do it, but it's too hard, and so I'm just going to quit struggling with it, and I'm just going to, you know, accept defeat and say, I'm, I'm just going to keep living this life, and, uh, and, and let, I'll, you know what I'll do? I'll let others accept the truth of Jesus, and I'll live vicariously through those who feel like they can make the necessary changes that Jesus is calling for. And that's not, that's not good, so you've got to be aware of that. But I do encourage us to, uh, to use the fourth option, the struggle, to, uh, to attain to reach for uh, the third option, which is accepting and, and, and bringing it all in. Um, so this struggle uh, brings, brings up several thoughts in my mind. There's, there's one band that I like, and, and they've got uh, one line that kind of, I think, speaks to this. At least to me, it, it kind of epitomizes the struggle for my life. And, and they say, uh, I once was blind, but now I just look away. Okay, and so that, for me, that's what, 
You know, that's what I don't want to do. That's defeatism. That's to say, you know, I see the truth, but I'm, I'm, I'm choosing to, uh, to, to, to have a blind eye toward it. So Jesus says don't worry, and I'm saying that we should struggle, and that they seem to be contradictory. Uh, but the idea for me is to struggle, to have this personal struggle so that one day we can understand worry. Okay? Because, as, again, as I said, we are, we are removed from the worry that Jesus talks about because of the things that we surround ourselves with. But if we struggle, okay, if we have this personal struggle, then one day we can understand what Jesus is saying. Um, this personal struggle, this, it, I also, in my own life, I, I call it like a consciousness. It's a consciousness of, of, what, of what needs to happen. It's a personal struggle. It reminds me, um, some of us went to um, a Nazarene church on the north side uh, last year, and there was a ma- an imam up there, and he was telling us about uh, jihad and what jihad means. And the idea of jihad is struggle. And so for me, that, that made me, me think about uh, this thing in my life that I struggle with. And I was talking to Stefan about it, and he said, yeah, that jihad is a very fluid concept in Islam. And for many people, it is this idea of repentance, this idea of, of a struggle for righteousness uh, in the sight of God. And so for me, that's what, that's what I'm doing. I'm trying to attain... Uh, I'm trying to reach for the way of Jesus, but it's a struggle. It's a personal struggle. It's like, a, 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 it's like my own jihad. And Paul had this kind of struggle, this kind of jihad. And I'm, we're going to end there, and uh, we'll be done. And hopefully we're not too downtrodden. But Paul struggled uh, to attain what he wanted to do in life. And hopefully... This pa- you'll see this passage in a new light uh, as opposed to just looking at it in terms of uh, you know, sexual sin or addiction and those kinds of things. Paul talked about this. Uh, Romans chapter 7, verse 15. I'll read this real quick. I do not understand what I do. I don't know why I live like this. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do not if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. And then uh, let's move on down. Verse 24, he says, What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So there's Paul's personal struggle and just final words. Um, And hopefully we can um, interact and, um, and hopefully you found something that you can take home. Um, number one, all is lost, okay, in this discussion, um, all is lost if we judge each other uh, based on these parameters. Um, Moses has been very good to remind us of what Zach said, 
when they met with uh, the Mennonite pastors at some meeting about, you know, scripture or whatever, you know, the thing about, you know, the central issue is that we love each other. And that's the same thing here. It's like this whole discussion is void if, we're, if we don't love each other along this journey. Uh, there's really no room for, for someone to say, um, I'm following Jesus better than you. You better get your act straight and stop doing this or that and stop spending money this way or that way and putting that wedge between people. Um, as an example, um, this guy, I know this guy right here um, deals with this struggle, okay? Now, everyone in this church, everyone besides Paul might think that uh, dumpster diving is good for Paul, but not good for anybody else, okay? But in Paul's mind, it's good. It would be good for all of us to participate. But he has this struggle. I hope I'm not putting you on the spot. But it would be wrong for you to impose those kinds of things on the rest of these people, even though it would put us in the path of following Jesus in the way that he talks about in Matthew chapter 6, okay? I hope we're following this. So, Paul doesn't have a right to judge us based on the fact that we think it's icky to get inside a dumpster. However, we all should think about if that, is part of what it means to follow Jesus, not just for Paul, okay? So, my admonition to you, accept the truth of how bad we suck at following Jesus. Okay? I mean, let me say it, it's, it's pretty personal. I mean, this is a community thing, but it's also pretty personal. Let me say it both ways. My, my admonition to myself is to accept the truth of how bad I suck at following Jesus. My admonition to you is to accept the truth of how bad you suck at following Jesus. But, find infinite hope in that realization. To find infinite hope in the realization that we suck.